Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Today we are once again turning things over to our fellows. This is part one of Unconventional Pathways to Science a two-part conversation by fellows Asmal Hassan and Cielo Sharkas, where they talk to their mentors. In this episode, Cielo Sharkas, an Agents of Change fellow and a PhD candidate in civil and environmental engineering at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, talked to her mentor, Dr. Joe Vanderspeck, a retired professor of BU Medical School and department head of the Worcester Public Schools Biotechnology Program. Vanderspeck has worked both in public and private education, focusing her efforts on mitigating social injustice for historically underrepresented groups. She's created educational interventions for hundreds of women of color and helped integrate diversity and inclusion principles into public secondary education. She's an integral part of the Worcester and Boston communities helping many girls go to college and graduate school, including Cielo herself. Now Vanderspeck serves as the assistant director to HOPE, Humans for the Opposition of Pollution and Emissions, a nonprofit founded by both Vanderspeck and Sharkus. It is so cool to hear about Cielo and Joe's friendship and connection. Now I'm going to turn things over to Cielo. Enjoy the conversation. Joe Vanderspeck has been my mentor for, I want to say, about 10 years when I first started as a high school student in Worcester Public Schools. So Joe was a very important figure in my life. She was actually the first person I'd ever met with a PhD, and she was one of the only women who I've ever met also with a PhD at that time. And so Joe was really important to me because when I started, I really wanted to be a scientist, and I didn't know what that meant because my parents didn't graduate high school, nor did they graduate college or get advanced degrees. And so for me, Joe was like a beacon of hope, someone who could mentor me and teach me all the tips and tricks to succeeding. And when we started at our biotechnology program, what I remember the most was Joe gave me this lab coat that said Dr. Sharkis on it. And I was so excited because that could be me in like 12 years. <laughs> and so Joe, why don't you describe who you are? Uh, well, thank you very much, Cielo, and I am someone who's always been interested in science, just always enjoyed it, and I am someone who fortunately, both my parents uh, raised me to accept everybody. They were in World War II in Holland. They went through a lot. They, uh, we, they immigrated to Canada, uh, and where they met, got married, and then they came to the United States. Uh, I was born in Canada, and um, I was lucky to have parents who were not prejudiced or you know, had all these conceptions about people. So that's me. And I was little Miss Science nerd. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was, that was just like me when I was a kid. Um, but one aspect I really wanted to focus on for our mentor discussion was understanding the impact that early career professionals have on women of color from low income areas. And so I really like to use this quote from Mary Alfred in 2018. She described that advancing women of color in STEM is an imperative for U.S. global competitiveness. And so for me, to address the absence of women of color in STEM, it's really important to understand how critical women like Joe are for career development, beginning with early childhood experience, 
throughout education and different work environments. And so Joe has worked over the past decade in Worcester Public Schools to create educational intervention programs that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's been a great advocate for starting early in elementary and secondary education. She's helped women learn how to code, reach research opportunities, and most importantly, support young women into achieving PhDs. Most of Joe's women alumni have actually entered graduate programs. And for me, she's been a really incredible force in the Worcester community and an inspiration to understanding how women of color can enter STEM in unconventional ways. She's actually the reason I've continued in this field and her wisdom really guides me and, and helps me feel both supported and comforted and validated in all of the experiences that I've had. And so I guess that brings us to our first question, Joe. Can you describe some of your early experiences when you were a grad student or an early career scientist starting out in the field? All right, well, um, first off, I wanna say I went to UMass Amherst for college and I majored in zoology, which was a big mistake. It's a huge, huge program, or it was then when I was there, and uh, you didn't really get an advisor. I mean, you had someone you didn't know, and you had to take seven semesters of chemistry, and the first thing that happened was they didn't put it on my schedule, So, um, and I was just totally lost in the sauce. Uh, took care of that, the chemistry issue, but then failed calculus, and uh, I was doing poor, I did poorly in organic chemistry during that year my father died. And I switched my major to microbiology. Much, much better major, uh, fewer people in it. And I, I had a place to go to to work. I, you know, I could speak with the head of that department. Uh, his name was Stanley Holt. At, at go and, I could go and talk to him and get advice from him. And they had a room there that had coffee, a coffee machine and a big desk and the students could go and sit in there. So I found my niche and it was easier to make friends in that program. So make sure you're in the right major, all right? And it's okay to change while you're in college. And one of the things I always told my students and I'm sure Ciela will remember this, when I, was, when I graduated from UMass, I had a 2.9 GPA, okay? So that's not a very high GPA. And you know what? It, I always told my high school students about it because I needed them to know that there was life after getting some bad grades. And you, know, you could still go to grad school and you can still meet your goals if you wanted to. And um, one of the things I did when I was working at uh, one of my jobs through, at Harvard, I took organic chemistry again and it, you know, I got a better grade. And then when I applied to grad school, I had that going for me, right? Uh, I also worked in four different jobs before going back to school. So um, five years, four different jobs. And then I went into uh, grad school and I went to Boston University School of Medicine for grad school. Uh, and um, it, that was fine. It was, a, I worked for a guy who was great. But unfortunately, the postdoc there was somebody who would stop a piece of equipment and take my experiment out of it because he wanted to use it. So I'd go, you know, I'd have samples in a centrifuge. He would turn it off. <laughs> uh, so he, I'd be using a water bath and he would just take my stuff out and put his in. So uh, I had to change labs while I was in graduate school as well. 
So gradual school, uh, yeah, graduate school, when I started the biotechnology program, at, well, it was a biochemistry program at graduate school, a lot of the students didn't accept me at first because I was older than they were. You know, I was five years older than they were. So it took them a while uh, to get used to me. I wasn't invited to parties. They wouldn't talk to me at first, but as they got to know me, they realized, okay, and then, you know, it took them a little while to get used to me, but grad school was fine. I mean, when I went to yeah. grad school, we got paid to go. So I got you know money for doing research in a lab. And I also um, made some friends there. So that was good. And I treated it like a job. That's one thing about having worked for five years. It was my job to go in every day and work all day and sometimes on weekends to get my work done. So that was it. And I really enjoyed biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I love how you discussed that you had a 2.5 GPA UMass because 2.9. Yeah. 2.9. <laughs> I like that you described that you had a 2.9 yeah. at UMass because when I first started my undergraduate career and I started getting a low GPA, mine was actually 2.5. So when I started getting this low GPA, <laughs> my parents actually asked Joe, they were like, why is this happening to Cielo? Is this common? Is, is there something wrong with her? And uh, what I loved about Joe was she was able to explain even to like my parents and other people's parents that this is completely normal. And this also helped comfort me because personally, when you start in undergrad or even in grad school and you just immediately start floundering or not doing well, it was, it was nice knowing that, you know, I came from a lineage of people who struggled and also succeeded. So that's one of the really big things I really wanted to hit on in this podcast. I wanted to talk about unconventional ways to stay in STEM and thrive in STEM. So I know all about your undergraduate and graduate experiences. Is there anything else that really stands out? What are some things that people have said to you that really oh. are memorable? Well, yeah, that um, would have been more about the five years uh, that I worked at four different jobs before going back to school. Um, it, I ran into racism and sexism at my jobs. So when I first got out of college, I worked in a lab. So people even hired me with a 2.9 GPA, but I went and I worked in a lab where the lab manager, uh, the, the head of the lab was okay. The lab manager was uh, quite a jerk. And um, I, was, I was running clinical samples for cholesterol and triglycerides. And they used to have a, a guy who would deliver the samples to me so that, you know, there'd be different people each time. But one, uh, one guy in particular, he was a young um, African-American man and he came in and it was the last, his last delivery of the day. And he was talking to me about, he was interested in going to college and how should he go about doing that? And did I have any advice for him? And while he was in there with me, the lab manager came in, told him to get out and told me that um, he hoped he'd, that I hadn't told the young man where I lived because he might follow me home and rape me and that he was gonna have him fired. So um, I'm sorry, wow. I get a little upset when I tell that story. Wow. And I um, had to go to the head of the lab and talk to him. And uh, he told me not to worry that he would contact uh, the personnel department and let them know not not to do anything to the young man. 
And I also that contacted. Horrible. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Oh, that guy was so bad. The lab manager. I, I mean, he was sexist and racist. And, and just, how long was he there? He was there for, I, I lasted at that job for a year wow. only because the head of the lab begged me to stay. I mean, I wanted to leave after six months, but uh, he told me I'd, you know, be tough for me to get another job if, if I left, which, right. uh, you know, I, I wish now I had. But that's but, the general fear for women, even in grad school, you know, you're scared of switching PIs because you don't want a reputation for being problematic or you're afraid to leave or, your job no, because you don't want to burn bridges. Too. You know, I did that too. And if you got to yeah. do it, you got to do it. You, you got to get your work done. Yeah. That's the but number one issue. It's yeah. so hard to get your work done when you see these injustices or injustices happening around you. So how, how have you had hope throughout all of those challenging times? How have you been so forward focused and how has that helped you to succeed? I know everything you've been through and all the things you've seen, how are you able to make it out and create something so positive from those challenging experiences? Well, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before when that happened to me. So I left there and again, I spoke with the personnel department and they told me they knew what an a-hole he was um, and not to worry about it. But this was way back in like 1979. That's how old I am. And then, um, you know, I just, that wasn't the first time I ran into sexism. I mean, I worked at four different jobs. The last job I worked for a woman. So I wouldn't have the issue. I thought, you know, I'm only going to work for a woman. But um, you just have to keep on going. I mean, I have to say, once I got to graduate school, it that was much better. All right. I didn't encounter all the sexism. And I don't, um, thinking back to grad school at BU Medical School, uh, BU School of Medicine, uh, I don't remember much racism. But Boston was pretty integrated, especially since uh, BU School of Medicine is in the Roxbury area and near City Hospital. So the, it was a very um, diverse population of people. So that helped. But how do you go on? I, I was a science nerd. I loved science. But you also had a really great men mentor as well who helped oh, motivate so you. That. That was when uh, that was when I was working. All right, so I'd graduated from uh, I graduated from graduate school, <laughs> and then I got my first job. And for my first job, I did work at BU School of Medicine, which you're not really supposed to stay and do your postdoc at the same place that you went to grad school. But I didn't have any money. I mean, my father had died. A lot of the other grad students were going to other countries and states and I was like yeah I don't have the money to move so I'm going to stay here and work and uh, so that was in the department of medicine section of uh, molecular genetics and I worked for a guy Jack Murphy and he was great and then um, I got um, that's where I met Dr. Harold Amos so I was actually at that job for about 10 years uh, and when I left it, it I mean, I was faculty there for quite a while. I left at the level of a, a associate professor. But during that time, I met Dr. Harold Amos. And Harold uh, was from New Jersey. He was African-American. He actually attended a segregated school for, um, you know, when he was in grade school. And then he went to high school there. He graduated first in his class. 
He went to Springfield College on a full academic scholarship. He got his bachelor's um, but he, in biology. He graduated summa cum laude. And then he went and fought in World War II. All right, so he was, he was so nice. He was the nicest man I've ever met. And he was a, a mentor to a lot of people. He, he, he's helped a lot of people. Um, he went to Harvard Medical School and he got his PhD in 1952. That was so long ago. And he was the first African-American to get his PhD. And it was in the Division of Medical Sciences. He was also the first Afro-American to be a department chair. So was he, he was chair of the microbiology department and the molecular genetics department. And if any of you ever wanna know about him, just, I mean, look him up online, Harold Amos, Harvard. Yeah. And you'll find out so much about him. I mean, they say we always stand on the shoulders of giants. So it's amazing that you had someone like that for you. Oh, I, I used to make coffee for him every morning. And he would, he would come in every morning, tell me something smelled good. And he would take his first sip and he would always, always thank me. He was such a gentleman. Uh, he, uh, honestly, so important to so many people at Harvard. I mean, you should, you should look him up. Anyway, he always told me I should be a teacher uh, because of course I was teaching, you know, I was teaching PhD and MD students uh, in, during summer programs I was taking in college students and working with them. I was teaching people who came from other labs to learn how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And he used to tell me, you know, that, that I, I just should be a teacher because I explained things so clearly and that I would really be great at it. And that I could really make a lot of difference uh, for a lot of people. And that's true. You have made a big difference for so many people. But when you first began your career as a high school teacher, I, I'm sure it must have been interesting starting with a PhD since most most other high school teachers only have master's degrees, but what were some obstacles and challenges you faced when you first started the program, like including the funding? How did you overcome that? Oh, okay. So to start with, um, I, didn't, I didn't really have any obstacles when I started. Uh, I, the, when I went in for the interview, and you're right, I, I, the thing is, um, after I left BU, I also worked in a few small industries, all right, small startup industries. And the program was advertising for, uh, the school program was advertising for someone who had worked in industry the past few years. And I came in with the PhD as well. And, uh, you know, not to brag, but I pretty much blew them away. I mean, I had, all the requirements they needed. I mean, I walked into that interview and I said, you know, you don't want someone who's only worked in industry for a couple of years. You mm -hmm. want someone who's been at a lot of different jobs and done a lot of different types of techniques. And um, we had a great principal at the school, female principal, and the vocational director was a great guy. So, and, and they had already obtained a grant for $100,000 for me to start the program. So I really, my, uh, I really, not that many obstacles starting it. Um, the students who came into the classroom, I didn't have a lot of problems with them, but one of the things I did do, and this is kind of important because you and I have talked about this before. We had that explore program where people would come in and they would find out about the program and they would stay there for a week. And I used to tell them at the beginning, 
that if you're going to come into this program, you're going to work very, very hard. You know, we're one of the most difficult programs in the school. I, and I think you remember me telling you guys I was for real. I knew about science. I expected a lot. <laughs> you know, I expected you to work hard. And I also said that if I heard about any bullying or racism, racist remarks, that was it. You were done. You weren't getting into the program. I wasn't interested in having anybody in the program who would do that. And I, I learned that because of the first few explores that I did when I started, I'd have students come in and talk about fights they had at their other schools. And I remember one girl in particular saying how she smashed someone's head into a sink. It just was like, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> don't want anybody like that. <laughs> it was really incredible the way that you were able to create both like a safe space for us to be vulnerable, but ways that students who had challenging backgrounds were able to, you know, utilize their own personality and, and adapt to the new changing ecosystem. So in our lab, we had a lot of students who were disabled, different yeah. cultures. Joe was able to create spaces for them to pray in, spaces where students could eat at any time, depending on like Ramadan, fasting. It was really incredible all the lengths that Joe went to to make sure everyone was comfortable and that everyone that entered the space was respectful of other people as well. Yeah, you had to feel safe. And, and you mentioned, you know, uh, well, you mentioned Ramadan and people eating food and stuff. That was a huge, great thing about having the different cultures there. Remember how we could invite everybody to bring something to eat from their culture? I used to love that. Yeah, I remember that too. That was my favorite. Would have. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting the way how something so simple can make you feel welcome I used to love bringing in different snacks from my culture, sharing like samosas from other people. Oh, it, was, it, was, it was so cool. Yeah. yeah. Even like vegans and vegetarians, all of us just able to, you know, coalesce in the space together. And then it's even those like little things as well, like food insecurity in Worcester, Massachusetts is really, really big. So giving students the opportunity to eat at the beginning of the day and be flexible with how long they needed for lunch times was really important too. Yeah. Oh, and we should point out that most of the students who were in biotechnology were female. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the girls, women, you know, who did come in, uh, they, they were doing it because they were interested in the life sciences. They wanted to help people. And I'm not putting down the guys who came in. We had some very great guys come in, a very diverse population of guys too, but Usually the class makeup was 80% women at least. I mean, the last class was, I think it was 22 and there was one guy in it. But um, most, of the, most of the people who came into biotechnology were women. Yeah, and it's amazing the impact that you can have on all these high school girls. So how has that changed your perspective about STEM and STEAM and women in engineering? How have they positively changed the culture of science at Worcester Tech and in the greater Massachusetts community? I have to say it works. All right, STEM, STEAM. I mean, I went to STEM things at uh, WPI and then they had these different programs. And I mean, I'm saying WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute because it's near um, our school. Also, we got a lot of help uh, from UMass Medical School which our school is also located near a lot of women in medical school and they would come in uh, and, and talk to the students one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and you know, CLO, I mean, your, your mentor from UMass Med was a guy. 
but they would come in and they would talk and tell you about their experiences and uh, what, you know, and you could talk to them. They helped with the um, college application process. We're also near uh, Holy yeah, Cross. Yeah, I remember that. There's a program there that, that takes, you know, the students go after school and they'll help them with their work and they'll do some tutoring. So but all of those programs, and that's called X-Chrome, by the way, because that's uh, only for women. And those kind of programs really do make a huge difference. I mean, a lot of the students have gone to summer programs at WPI. Oh, and of course, the internships, right? UMass mm -hmm. uh, Medical School is the, the students would go and do internships there. Unfortunately, that ended, they couldn't do it during COVID, but they would work in labs and they would find out what it was like to work in a lab. The same WPI would was taking them as well. You, I think you were one of the first students to do an internship. Yeah, I, rem I remember that. Yeah, it was before the program actually started and you were working in a doctor's office, right? Yeah, I loved having that opportunity. So Joe worked really, really hard to match us based off our interests. And I think I told Joe in passing that I really, really wanted to be in the medical field. So I was going to go to grad school, you know, go all through my undergrad being a pre-med major. And so I started in this rheumatoid arthritis lab and I was like 17. Uh, but it was so funny working with this nurse and she was explaining all of the aspects of patient care. And it was so cool to be able to do that. You know, I did it like full time. What is how many hours a week of school? Like 30 hours a week. And yeah. it was so much fun. And then at the end too, I was really, really good friends with the the nurse who introduced me to the world of rheumatoid arthritis. But for me, it was so traumatic. Everyone would just be like covered in like the scaling skin. And <laughs> I don't know how she did it. <laughs> yeah, but it was, some people would come in so bad and she'd be like, oh, honey, don't look go over here. <laughs> but after that, I was like, wow, I definitely don't want to be a doctor anymore. I'm, I'm going to go with Joe and do the, my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny how you decide you don't want to be an MD? Yeah. And then you're interested in research. Yeah. Yeah. That well, happens a lot too. Well, then but I started know, thinking about, oh, go yeah. ahead. No, it's just, you know, that when the students come into biotech, a lot of them think MD and then they start learning about science and they're like, oh, and then they start getting specific. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to work on this. I want to work on that. You know, I want yeah. to do that. And it's, and it works, the STEM programs, the STEAM programs, being in a program where you meet people who are doing it, you know, and, right. and you realize you can do it. It helps tremendously. It does. And the common misconception when I was in middle school, everyone would be like, don't go to a trade school. You won't go to college. You won't get a good job. And I don't know where that came from, but for Joe and like her program, she creates such high quality powerful researchers it's it's really incredible so wh where are some of the places that students have gone I know it's maybe been a long time but I know there's some oh, at Harvard oh Brown Brown Columbia Columbia UMass Amherst mm -hmm. uh there's uh I think there's one at University of Vermont um and then your students receive oh, so many. I mean um yeah, a couple of the different UMass, Worcester State. All right, mm -hmm. so a lot of the students, they get a little upset when they don't go somewhere else. But honestly, we had also, um, well, the Tech High School is about 62, 63% non-white. And a lot of the, the, the students there are also, um, they've, you know, they're from other countries, they're immigrants. And uh, their parents have done a lot to get here. So they really, you know, they want their kids to be educated. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it's just, you know, oh, I'm losing my train of thought now. I mean, they're just a really diverse group. Right. And, you know, it's important, it, it's so important to them to do well. A lot of them end up going to Worcester State because they have single mothers also. And they can't go anywhere else. Yeah, there, and, there's a big obligation for taking care of, of other people as a woman. Yes, yes, exactly. And so they go to Worcester State and, and they feel badly about it. And um, they shouldn't because from Worcester State, you can still go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them go to the community college and they say, go, oh, but wow, that's a great way to save money. And then from there, UMass will take you. Right. Yeah. And uh, it just, you know, they feel badly about it. But man, there was, um, I remember a guy came in to speak at Tech and he was one of the first, or if not the first, Afro American uh, astronaut. Were you there when he came in to speak? No, I, I wasn't there. He, he, he went to, you know, he didn't go to a big, hunky, great name college. And he, he ended up becoming an MD and <laughs> an astronaut. So you can do it. So don't feel bad about that. Because here we were naming Brown and Harvard and Columbia and stuff. Yeah, but- There's been a lot of incredible success from community colleges as well. I know when I was in high school, Joe, and with the help of other Worcester Tech staff, sent myself and some of my friends to community college at night where we did like dual enrollment. So even then it was really wonderful getting to see how you can still advance your degree while also saving money. And I really liked it there. It was nice. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's true too. Doing that, you get to find out, hey, I can do this because so many students are afraid to go to college. And then they go and they take one of these programs and they have online programs too that you can take. And it's like, hey, I can do this. So when you're encouraging young girls or even young women, it's really important to be able to help them figure out their path but most of all, being comfortable with where you're at. So Joe's helped me become extremely comfortable with where I'm at. So, you know, I went to WPI for undergrad, struggled pretty severely there. And then when it came to graduate school and I was thinking about all these big heavy hitters like MIT, thought about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, UTC, Joe actually convinced me to go to UMass because that's where I felt the most comfortable. You know, it was the, I had the best advisor there, the best resources, still close to home. And sometimes I feel like it is humbling thinking about what could have happened, but it's nice knowing that the best place I could have been was here with Joe along my side, because without that, we wouldn't have been able to start some of the things we've started, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Cielo has started up a, a charity and she asked me to be on it with her. And uh, we're doing what I consider to be some pretty exciting work right now. I hope we're applying for a grant. I hope we get it. Uh, and it's to help um, underrepresented minorities in Holyoke. To I hope we get it too. <laughs> you know, so, and it's and working with a great group of people. That's we, one of the things I've been thinking about recently. Like, you know, had Joe not started that program, maybe I wouldn't have been here at all doing justice work. And had we not started this nonprofit, doing this charitable work, perhaps environmental injustices would have continued to happen in Western Mass without outside intervention. And so that's what I really love to think about this impact of scale, this butterfly effect that you really have when you're a mentor and the steps that you can take to create wonderful opportunities for your mentees, because there are a lot of mentors who hold you back in a lot of ways. 
right? Joe and I actually at WPI, we had the same problematic mentor <laughs> who we won't talk about. But oh, right. I remember her because I worked at WPI. That was the last job I had before I went back to school. Uh, yeah. But thinking about the some of the things she said, the way she made us feel is incredible because we we were in these same positions, like what is it, 30, 40 years apart. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I did not work for her. I worked for a woman who was quite nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of the reason I left her is because she, she went back to England. Wow. But yeah, there was a faculty member who was kind of a pain in the butt. And before I forget, uh, Ciela, I want to say mm-hmm. you had asked me earlier how we funded the program. Well, I started with some funding. Uh, I think it was a year or two uh, later, I applied for help from Math Life Science Center because they they um, have grants and I got $100,000 for them. And then I think not long after that, UMass Medical School uh, gave over $800,000 to Technical High School for the biotechnology program. You know, yeah, and that's really worked. incredible. Yeah, and that, you know, because they were seeing the program worked. All right. Mm-hmm. They were seeing that students, you know, I, you know, they knew it was working. They, and it just made such a huge difference because then we didn't have to worry about getting the equipment we needed or updating stuff. And that was, you know, partially because, you know, while Sheila Harity was involved with that, the principal of the school. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you need to have good, a lot of good people <laughs> to make all this work. And I'd like to, of course, give credit to the other teachers who were there. Right. I mean, I don't know if I should say their names on a podcast, but I was not working alone after the, after, I think it was my third year, I got another teacher in because the program was growing and she was tremendous. And then after that, we had another great teacher who was also tremendous. So the three of us were working together and we were able to do so much with all the help the community was giving us too. Yeah. Yeah. The community help is so important too, because I feel like a lot of the time you can start as a even a researcher, you can start as like a climate justice engineer, or whatever in your community. But when you really don't get to know them, it's so insincere. And so like Joe's greatest power, in my opinion, is her ability to connect with the community. All of the students, parents who I know, all the students remember Joe extremely fondly because of the impact she had on the community, always hosting like outdoor lunches, all of those alumni events that you've hosted, all of the different programs you've done. She's just been such a big force in the community. It's it's really hard to imagine Worcester Tech without her or even imagine for me like science without her. But given that you have that great impact, you have all these accolades, what suggestions would you give aspiring mentors or even mentees out there who hope to create change and success on the scale that you did? All right, so uh, to be a mentor, to start with, you gotta make yourself available. All right. Let the students know you care about them, that it, they can talk to you, you know, that you're available. Uh, and that makes it a lot easier for someone to ask you, uh, will you help me with this or that? But the mentees, people who, who want to, you know, get a mentor, they also, they have to be outgoing enough to ask. They have to learn how to talk to people. I would say, because when, when um, girls first start high school, I mean, you're 14 years old, you're afraid to talk to grownups. So you have to start, well, in biotech, uh, you know, you would start by, you need to be able 
to talk to people. Uh, one of the things that we did, one of our goals in biotech was people should be able to give presentations. It wasn't just grownups that students were afraid to talk to. It was like talking to a group of people. They were also scared. So one of the things they had to do was learn how to give presentations and answer questions and learn that it was okay. And they were not the only ones who were nervous. So, um, and another example I have is, uh, well, what we had students designing experiments and one girl was interested in a paper that she couldn't get in line, a research paper. And I said to her, you know, if you look there, you find out who the uh, first author was, you call that person and ask them to send you a copy of that. And she did that. And within 15 minutes, she had received the paper you know, electronically, along with a letter from the primary investigator saying, you know, this is wonderful that you did this. I can't believe mm -hmm. you're working in a high school where you're, you're studying, you know, all these different things and you're interested in learning about this experiment. Good for you. It's funny that people are so fascinated about Worcester Tech. I'll just give a, a brief like spiel about it. When I was like 14 years old, I was doing genetic recombination, handling micro pipettes. I was doing some advanced work that like legitimately students in their senior year of undergrad hadn't done. So it was extremely advanced. And so for me, Joe instilled a lot of confidence in me. And so at an early age, even when I had my like 2.5 GPA at WPI, I was like, yeah, I know how to do all these things. I've been doing this for like six years. And I was what, like 20 years old. It was, it was really incredible. And same thing when I went to graduate school, you know, now I've been doing science for like a decade. And so when I talk to people about it, I'm like, yeah, I've been doing this for a decade. I'm 24. People are like, what? So it's, it's just, it's really inspiring for me creating that at an early age. Yeah. You got to learn how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause nothing's going to happen if you don't ask. Right. And I really, I really love the fact that you empowered so many young women and, and girls at all stages of their career. There's still a lot of students who talk to me. I'm, I'm kind of like the, I'm not gonna say gatekeeper. I'm kind of like the point of contact for Joe, just because people know about our really advanced relationship. So Joe's helped me in so many really difficult spots. When I was struggling in undergrad, I did this study abroad where I had a lot of the same experiences Joe talked about, racism, sexism. It was, it was actually horrific. I won't go into detail about it, but I'll, all of my contacts from undergrad and like high school wouldn't reach out to me or they didn't respond. And so I was sitting there on the phone with Joe every night and we're going over detail by detail on how to make my project be revived on, we're trying to figure out how to make me succeed and thrive here, even despite every single day going to the office and facing like racism and sexism. And even now in graduate school, I can call Joe when I'm having a difficult time with my thesis or just some aspect of being a PhD candidate. And Joe will be there and respond. And I think that's really incredible. One of my proudest moments was when I graduated and I invited Joe to the student of color reception. And she gave me this card, which I'm holding right now. I, I actually, I look at this all the time when I want to leave grad school. It says, <laughs> you will enjoy the next steps of your life, dot, dot, dot. Dr. Sharkis. Oh my God. I think of, I look at this and I cry. So sometimes I've been traveling back and forth across the country a lot. And so I'll be on the plane looking out at the, at the clouds and I'll just, I'll actually be just like crying, thinking about writing what I was going to say in my dissertation acknowledgements about Joe and having her there. It actually makes me really emotional now because I, I just really can't wait for that. Just how proud she will be of me. And it, it keeps me going. Oh, and yeah. I think 
a lot of students feel the same as I do. I'm, I mean, you know, when you were graduating from WPI, the president got up there and talked about you specifically. It was amazing. I was so proud of you. You know, it's, it was really cool. Students <laughs> make me so proud. You know, when they and uh, um, it's just there've been you know award ceremonies uh, during the you know where kids. Uh, it just yeah, I have I've had a lot of proud moments like that. But it's being proud of the students. It's it's because they work so hard. <laughs> that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to Cielo and Joe talk, reflect, and reminisce. What a touching relationship. May we all have mentors like Joe in our lives. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it and help us out. Visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was recorded by Cielo Sharkis and Asmal Hassan, with editing by me, outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshida, or now this Fanhorn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Sio, and Aaron Gomez. You can email us at agentsofchangeenej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeenej.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join us next time for part two of Unconventional Pathways to Science, when Asma Hassan and Cielo Sharkas speak with one of Asma's mentors, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. That's right, the Dr. Catherine Hayhoe will be on our podcast. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>